Heavenly Father, thank you for providing your word that we might search the scriptures, we might study, we might think about and meditate on what you've said so that these things might be applied practically in our lives so that we change to become more like our Lord and Savior Jesus. Thank you for giving us great and magnificent promises. And may we believe those we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the handouts that, that are there that were made up for us have two weeks' worth of material. So don't lose them. or take, uh, I have no way to make more. And th- so they have to last for two weeks. I'm sure they'll, I won't even get through that much material. But it's at least there for you to think about. It's all scripture. And I have notes on top of that. Our topic is sanctification. Now, this slide here I've had on my PowerPoint about five or six different times, and it always gets pushed off the bottom because we don't get to it. So I've moved it all the way to the top so that we can actually deal with it. It's not exactly about sanctification, although it certainly issues into verses that are. But it's an important verse, and it's one that's hotly debated as to its meaning. It's about God's desire to save all. And also, it's about that time is something different relative to God than it is relative to us. And God is patient and long-suffering. And so let's read the passage, 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So here we have some additional truth from God, and that is that one of the reasons for the delay, remember the mockers were mocking, saying, where's the promise of his coming? Everything's the same as it's always been. Can't count on the word of God. Can't count on what you Christians have to say. There's no return of Christ. Everything shall always be the same. And then Peter referenced Noah to point out that everything really isn't the same. Things have changed. There was a judgment that happened, the flood. And now the patience of God is such that he is delaying his return. And here it gives a reason for the delay, his patience and his not wishing for any to perish but for all to come to repentance. The implication would be, of course, if we do not repent, we shall perish. Remember, Jesus said in Luke 13, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And so emergent would deny that. Rob Bell and company are saying that Love wins, meaning there's no hell, there's no judgment, and what have you. We know that's false, and we know it's not 
biblical. So we are given time in the mercy and long-suffering of God where he endures mockery. Notice the mockers come with their mocking. Where's the promise of his return? They're actually taunting God and daring him to judge them. If you're going to judge us, well, do it. We don't even believe you exist. We're going to go on in our rebellion. And the fact that God doesn't judge us for it is proof that, that he doesn't exist. And the irony, according to this passage, is that the reason for this delay is the patience of God. Now, here it says, not wishing or willing for any to perish. Now, the debate theologically that has been part and parcel of this verse over the centuries has been identifying what it means not wishing for any to perish. The term will, here is bulamai, but the term will, when we're talking about God's will, is used in at least two different ways. Probably there's more than that, but at least two. One would be God's eternal decrees, and the other would be God's desire that may or may not come to fulfillment. So one way that this has been interpreted is to interpret Bulamai here, will, as God's desire, and God takes no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. Now, we know from other scriptures that's true. We don't know necessarily that's what Peter's talking about. We do know that's true, though. How do we know that? Well, let's look up some verses. Um, uh, Nancy, could you do Ezekiel 18.32? And Jean, 1 Timothy 2, 4, and 5. We'll do our best to understand the passage here. Okay, the one in Ezekiel, 18.32, as soon as you have it. I do. Ezekiel 18.32. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. Okay, so there again it says, God has no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, repent and live. So God doesn't delight in people being lost. But they are. There's other things that are important to God, including his justice. Gene, uh, 1 Timothy 2, 4, and 5. Who wants all men to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth? For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. Okay, so there's the one mediator and God's desire for all to be saved. Now, some people interpret that passage differently as well. But on the, sur- on the surface, it certainly seems to say that God has a desire for all to be saved. But here's another issue that comes up in the passage here in Peter, 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. It's patient toward you. Who is you there? And it, this certainly has been discussed over the centuries. And you would probably mean the church, and therefore the meaning could be understood as God is not 
willing that any of his elect perish, and he patiently waits for the full number to come to repentance. So, Brian, are you saying that's the right one? I'm not saying it is, but that's how I took it. <laughs> now, here we just we heard from the world's most imminent theologian. <laughs> okay. So there is the issue, and it has to be one of these other ideas. If bulamai means decree, then you have to restrict the you, otherwise you have universalism. God hasn't decreed that any perish. Could you bring the mic back to Eric? Yeah, thanks, Bob. You know, further evidence that you're on the right track here with the two different wills of God, uh-huh. one being the overt will or his decreative will that he actually brings about, and then the other will would be his permissive will. Um, uh-huh. For instance, when God commands us to not murder, he commands the world to do that, but yet people violate that will. That's his moral will. They violate that. But his decreative will, he brings about necessarily. And to show that that is a true distinction to be made, if you turn your Bibles to Romans 9.19, here Paul is addressing a potential response by men and women who don't like the fact that God decrees some for salvation and others not for salvation. He anticipates that that rebuttal. And in 9.19, he says, You will say to me then, why does he, that's God, still find fault for who can resist his will? And the term will there is the noun form of bulamai. It's the same will. So the rhetorical question demands an answer in 919 that no one can resist that will. So he will bring about his decree. Well, if that was being used in Second Peter 3 through 9 for the non-elect, then you would have universalism right. because no one can resist that will. So, so that's the way we can argue with their not- go into air, we have to do one or two things. We either lighten up on the word des- uh, will exactly, and make it desire, then we don't really go into any air because other passages teach that. Or if it's bulamai, you restrict the range to the elect. And you still don't go into any air because God's will that all those he foreknew would be saved. Now, Just to reinforce what Eric just said, if you go to Acts chapter 2, let's do that, and we'll see why you have to make this. Now, I have debated people who just get angry about this. I mean, literally, they get angry. What kind of a stupid doctrine you have? There's two wills of God, blah, blah, blah. They're just mad. And, And I'm trying to patiently say, but we have to know that. Because otherwise, this is Acts 2 makes no sense. So let's go to Acts 2. Acts 2, 23. Acts 2, 23. Talking about Christ, Peter's sermon there. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless men to nail him to the cross and kill him. That's a sin. They were sinners who committed rebellion against God by rejecting and killing Messiah, 
But it says here, it was according to God's determined plan of foreknowledge. So God willed in one sense that Messiah would die for sins, the just for the unjust in order to bring us to God. What he doesn't will in another sense in any regard, which is rebellion and murder. Never did, never will. So either there are two wills in God or the Bible contradicts itself. Okay, like I said, I debated a guy one time, pretty famous fellow, and we had a letter debate back before email, and he just blew this whole off. Ah, that's absurd. That's just stupid. There's not two wills in God. There's only one. Well, what am I supposed to do with this passage? He didn't care. He wasn't going to listen to it. You know what? That's not, how can I say it? That's not acceptable. It's not acceptable to say, I won't listen to what the Bible says. I just refuse to, because I don't like it. Because the Bible is God's revelation to us of his nature, his purpose, his dealings with us. And so we understand the gospel, we understand our obligations, we understand God's ways. And if we just say, I don't like it, so I won't hear it, the learning stopped. Well, that fellow went on in his stubbornness and wrote 500 and some pages claim, you know, against the grace of God and salvation. And I just, I, I just shook my head and said, I can't, I'm sorry, I can't help. Yes, Gail. Is there another way to look at this too, though? I mean, we know that God is at work restraining evil in this world. Mm-hmm. Man was just accomplishing what they wanted to, and God did not deter them from their purposes and their plans. He knew that it would happen. It was a natural result of man's sinfulness. Yeah, they're fully responsible, and God's purpose fully happens. Both are true. That's what I'm saying. But see, the Arminians will claim that unless you have the actual ability to choose the contrary, then you don't have true freedom. So that, and if you don't have that, you can't have human responsibility. But Peter was obviously preaching human responsibility, was he not? You, this one whom God raised, you nailed to the cross by the hand of godless men. And they were later smitten to the heart. Not all of them, but some of them. Okay, so Peter's preaching was designed to invoke guilt for these people so that they would repent. But yet that Jesus came into this world and died on the cross is God's eternal decreed will. Right? The Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. So either you have a contradiction or you have two wills in God. He wills in one sense what he doesn't will in another. Does that make any sense? We're just trying to understand the Bible. We're not trying to escape anything. You've got to understand the Bible. Now, how do we deal with this? Well, it's one of, the, one of the two. And we would agree that God has not ordained or decreed that any of his elect would perish. And we would also agree that God desires all to be saved in one sense, though he doesn't actually save all for other reasons for, that are known the best we can in scripture, such as his just desire to display his justice.
Does this make sense? Adam, do you have any insights that we haven't covered? He does. Well, I've done a lot of work on this passage in the past, and I, I couldn't go into detail today and, and give a, a full exegesis of it. Uh, but someday I, I'd be uh, more than willing to if you'd have me. Uh, I would just point out that when you lead into this, there's a, a main clause. Uh, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but, and here's, here's his main point, is patient toward you. And now, in the main clause, this is the, the main point of the sentence. Uh, and most people ignore the, the main point uh, and quote it out of context and, in fact, misquote the participle that follows. Here we see that the, the very object of God's patience is you are the same audience that he characterizes in the, the previous sentence as, as beloved, so as, uh, as believers. And then participles in Greek, uh, in the following, it's not a, a causal clause. He could have used OT if, if he wanted to give a reason or a, mm-hmm. co- or a cause, uh, but as a linguist, even Rungi says, uh, the, the primary function of participles is to elaborate, expand, flesh out the, the main point. Uh, and so the main point, God is patient toward you. But his audience could ask, well, what do you mean, Peter? What, what do you mean God is patient toward us? Not wishing or intending that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And I'd say in the the previous sentences in this, there are only two antecedents. Uh, There are the scoffers and Peter's uh, own audience to whom he says he's patient. I think it turns uh, Peter's argument uh, on its head uh, to say that uh, suddenly he's switching to to all of all of humanity, because uh, th- this is a very personal, uh, in particular, statement that he's he's patient toward you, but it makes it uh, impersonal in general. Well, he's impa- he's patient toward you because well he's just patient toward toward everyone. He's he's patient toward the the scoffers, uh, and th- and also the reason uh, that Peter's giving here. Uh, that he's um, he's delayed his judgment is because of his patience uh, toward Peter's Peter's audience, the uh, the the beloved. Uh, but this makes it uh, that really uh, his patience toward the audience uh, is because he's patient toward the the scoffers. Uh, and I think uh, just last couple of comments. Uh, I think if if you look uh, ah. in verse fourteen, uh, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these. Uh, for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish uh, and at peace and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, uh, just as our <laughs> beloved brother Paul. I, I think there, I, I think God's actually accomplishing salvation here. Uh, and just one other parallel, uh, in chapter, uh, chapter 2, he gives all these conditionals uh, saying, if God saved uh, Noah and Lot, uh, and if he brought judgment and imprisonment on the fallen angels, on Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, and on the, the uh, wicked people during Noah's day, uh, in the, the conclusion, he says, 
Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Okay. And, and, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion, despise authority. And so I, I th think that uh, this is just a, another interpretation to, uh, to consider uh, as well. And I, I don't think it all hinges on how you read Buloma. Okay. Uh, Okay, thank you. But that's how you do biblical exegesis. I love you, man. I love thank you. Back, let's read the context, and I want to get into Hebrews, but let's go to verse 10. Let's just read on, and I think it might support what Adam has to say here. 2 Peter 3.10. All right? See so what else we learn. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Now, who is addressed? What Adam was saying, the Christian. Because we know God is coming, and it's going to be a cataclysmic judgment. That's more motivation for Christians to live in holy conduct and godliness. That's a term probably next week if we get to it, I want to talk about Eusebia. And so therefore there's motivational currency here in God's patience towards us during this time when judgment doesn't, hasn't come yet. But it will. And I think maybe there, you know, Adam, to reinforce your point, remember, uh, it was the book of Joel. Where is it where it says the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord? And they're saying, we want the day of the Lord because then our enemies will be judged. And the prophet says, well, I don't know if you want to be saying that because you're not right with God. Do you, where is that? Amos. I'm voting for Amos. That's right. And so here, likewise, the day of the Lord is a, a certain thing, but it should cause Christians to be motivated to holy conduct. Then it says in verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, okay, there's the term promise again. You find that here in our passage. We are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let's look at faith in God's promise. If we believe the promise of God that includes future judgment, that will motivate us to holy conduct and godliness. Because we really do believe what God said, that the day of the Lord is coming, so it will have power in our lives. If we don't believe what God said, or we're like some theologians that say, well, history's going to go on 70,000 more years, we won't even think about it. It's so far in the distant future. Thank you, Adam, Eric, dear ones. Look into these things and follow the best evidence 
and you'll understand, and I'll understand the gospel better. Let's go forward now to Hebrews 12. Now, we're talking about sanctification and means of grace. Now, means of grace are things that are attached to promises that God gives to us, the practice and the promise. And as, remember that chart I handed out, accessibility, God has promised that if we come to him on his terms, according to his word, he will work in our lives. Now, there's another aspect I want to bring up here, if you give me the patience to do this. There's what we know we need to do. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, and prayer. That's given for us to do, and promises attached. But there's another aspect to God changing us, and that's his fatherly discipline of his own children. Now, what's important about this? And, and my dear brothers and sisters, let me say with uh, much assurance, having seen what God's done in my life, the harshness and then the mercy, God does know what we need. And he will not let us run off on our own. And he will bring us back. And he will put us under his fatherly discipline. Now, one of the reasons I reject the teaching of spiritual formation and spiritual disciplines is that I would accuse that teaching of being guilty of presumption. In other words, the earthly father, let's read the passage and then I'll continue my comments. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Now, this is in a typical normal situation. Occasionally somebody doesn't. Shall we not much rather, so we have a lesser to greater argument, shall we much, not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, here's the lesser, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. The implication is it's not perfect, but it was really disciplined. But... There's our contrast. He, God the Father, disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. So one of the ways in which we shall become holy is God disciplining us as his sons and daughters. Then it goes on with sort of a truism. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. But yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Now, back to what I was saying about spiritual disciplines and spiritual formation. When I've read books on this and written reviews of them, including Donald Whitney, including Dallas Willard, including Richard Foster, all three of those I wrote reviews of, I would say that the big problem there is presumption, okay? Here, we're learning that the Father disciplines us for our good. What exactly does it look like? Well, in God's providence, it may look a little different for each one of us. 
because God is personally doing this. And he, in his infinite wisdom, the implication here is that his wisdom is better than earthly fathers. Okay? And he does this that we might share his holiness. What exactly does he do? Spiritual disciplines, the Romish practices that find out their way into these books, presume on God to know what we need. And so you read the literature, and I have a whole pile of books at home that I haven't reviewed formally, but I've read, and they're all of the same genre. Some of the popular things that they prescribe are silence and solitude. How do we know we need silence and solitude to be disciplined? Do you know that? No. Maybe we do. There's things that God and his providence can do so that we end up somewhere that way. But if we say, I'm going to go into silence and solitude and God's therefore obligated to do some work of grace because I decided to do this, there's a problem. What about the monastic vows? The most popular monastic vows were a vow of celibacy, a vow of obedience, and a vow of poverty. Okay? This was, Luther talked about these. He had at one time been a monastic. The idea is that if you want to be an extraordinary Christian, not an ordinary one, you take these monastic vows and join a monastery and vow to celibacy, obedience, which would be to this, whoever's in charge of things, and to poverty. Now, here's my question. Unless the Bible prescribes this for every Christian, how do we know that being poor is going to make us holy? How do we know that? Well, what happens if we just go about our life trusting God on his terms according to the means of grace and we become poor anyhow? Then we can see God at work. How is God going to use the fact that I landed in poverty for my benefit? Because all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I wouldn't have chosen this, but here I am, poor. Will God use that? Yes. So what I would say about this is that spiritual disciplines and spiritual formation are guilty of the sin of presumption. Richard Foster teaches the sin of presumption. He thinks he knows what every Christian needs to be more holy. But he doesn't. The only thing that we can know that every Christian needs to be more holy is what's prescribed for every Christian. Now, things outside of that fall into what's unique to the individual person. Those things are part of providence. Those things are God working all things together, Romans 8, 28, for the good of those who are, love him and are called according to his purpose. And it may be a lot of different things. It's all of life falls under that. 
And the, can, can we believe that God is so infinite in his love and his mercy and his wisdom that each one of us individually, he cares for, he disciplines, and he allows what comes into our life for our ultimate good. Do you believe that, my dear brothers and sisters? Hallelujah. I believe that. I've experienced it. Maybe knowing that that's the case, we might want to repent now. <laughs> okay? And get rid of certain things in our lives because God will discipline us and it's never joyful but it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. The topic here, by the way, is sonship. There is a, a discussion about sonship. And turn with me to Hebrews 12, 5. I've got to back up. I can only make just so many slides that we don't get to them anyhow. So by just turning to it, I have less guilt and we save paper. I can't feel bad that I didn't get to the slide, but I'm going to get to the verse. Look at Hebrews 12.5. And there's a warning in Hebrews 12.5. And the Greek is very interesting there. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. Now, this is generic. I mean, sons and daughters. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor faint when you are reproved by him. Now, faint, I was reading this in the Greek the other day, and that word faint just stood out to me as being very important. Faint means ekluo in the Greek, which means to loose out. So the fainting process would be that we are not wanting to go through the discipline of the Lord, which is going to lead to sharing his holiness. And so it would be to get it out, to get out. That's, uh, well, when I was uh, in high school, I was a long-distance runner, and as a relative back in the 60s, Iowa only allowed you to run two miles if you were in high school. That's our definition of long distance in those days. And there would be those who just had it. You get in a race, it's a long race, people are passing you, and sometimes you just ekluo. You get out, and you drop out, and you try to run away. Now, I think when it comes to the bigger theology that we have, we can't really run from God. But we might think, this, I'm telling you what it says here in the Greek, and it's a warning, that God has got our good in mind, and he's disciplining us for our good, and it would be wrong to bail out, or to loose out, get loose from it, or at least try to. And if we succeeded in getting loose from it, we wouldn't be Christians, would we? We'd be without discipline. Now, trained, now back to our slide here, trained is where we get our word for the gym, the gymnazo, and it means to exercise. 
And uh, I want to read 1 Timothy 4, 7. But have nothing to do with worldly fables, fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Godliness is Eusebia, also can be translated piety. So we're to discipline ourselves that we might live lives that would be pleasing to God. All right? Now, God's in charge of this, and as many faceted. The question would come to my mind, how do you know what it is? What's it look like? It's whatever God brings along that causes us to need to trust him more, to believe his promises more, to obey him more. That's what it looks like. And so one of the things that might happen, and here's the next passage, therefore strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight the paths of your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. You see, God is interested in us being healed. All right? Now, rather than becoming bitter, as we'll see, rather than... And an athletic, there's an athletic metaphor here. When an athlete gets really tired, whether it's a runner or a boxer or in some other such endeavor, what happens to the hands? They droop. And when your hands droop, then what happens? The guy punches you right in the face. (laughs) You're not staying up there in a defensive posture. Runners, once the hands drop, are not going to win the race. And so this is an admonition to the community. And the community should care for its weakest members. And we shouldn't be so cavalier about leaving anybody behind. Do you understand what I mean? To pull aside the one whose hands already dropped and say, don't give up the good fight of the faith. God is disciplining us for our good, according to his infinite wisdom, according to our particular need. The prescriptions of some who glean their practices from Rome may not at all be exactly what we need. Yes. When, when you backed up to uh, Hebrews 5. 12.5, yeah. 12.5. Uh, then verse 6 says, For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Exactly. Yeah, so uh, if you're not being disciplined, there's an issue, and that's why we should embrace that discipline. Yeah, and it's tailored to what will really get to us. I was thinking about this. I don't know why this remembrance came to me, but as a kindergarten kid on the farm, my favorite thing in the whole world was my BB gun. And that thing was with me all the time. And... I used to have my dad's permission to shoot the sparrows that got in the barn, the English house sparrows. They were pests. They were 
and starlings, birds like that. But I was not allowed to, to shoot a songbird. And I was sitting with my dad working out on the brooder house, and I was five, six years old, and I saw a bird and I went over and shot. And I hit it, only it was a wren. My dad was standing right there. And he went over, looks at the wren, looks at me, hand me the BB gun. No. (laughs) That would have been better. I'd been done with that. (coughs) And he took the BB gun, and he said, I'll decide when you get it back. And my BB gun was gone for two to three months. It was a long time. I thought I was going to (laughs) die. I never shot another songbird on that farm. Or I didn't shoot at something before I knew what it was. To lose that BB gun for three. So my dad, knowing me, knew what discipline would get my attention. No, I had, you know, little brothers that didn't care about hunting. They didn't care if they had a BB gun. So the Heavenly Father has infinitely more wisdom than our earthly fathers. And he knows precisely what we need in order that we might grow. Now, peace here, pursue peace with all men. Yeah, I'm on that is an inclusio with Hebrews 13.20. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. So peace is thematic in this section from 12.14 to 13.20. Peace is reminding us of the Hebrew idea of shalom, which means messianic salvation. And this... Pursue is a strong word, diokoo, and it's in the present active imperative. So this is an exclamation point. This is an imperative. And it's a strong term that denotes urgency. So it's urgent that we pursue both peace and the sanctification. There's a definite article in the Greek that comes out here in the New American Standard, or it could be translated just as legitimately, the holiness. Now, what I want to point out here is that this passage is telling us that if we don't have holiness, we will never see the Lord. That's what it says. And that holiness is something we ought to pursue. And so then that obviously raises a lot of questions, doesn't it? What if I don't pursue it well enough? Can I still have assurance? All men here, probably he's talking about the church, but certainly um, we should try to have peace with the God's people as we together pursue peace and sanctification or holiness it says in Romans 5 1 therefore having been justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ it says in Romans 14 17 
For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by man. So again, righteousness, right standing before God, peace. Irene in the Greek, shalom in the Hebrew means the peace of being right with God and messianic salvation. And the joy of the Holy Spirit. These are all what the kingdom of God is like now. But then it goes on and says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and many be defiled. Norm, yes. Uh, in what sense is the word sanctification used there? Is it in our perfection, or is it in our setting apart? <laughs> very good, very good question. Um, does it mean that we're saints? That we're set apart for God? That's what it means elsewhere in Hebrews. Or does it mean something that we don't have that we need to get? And I'm going to give, I don't know if it's a satisfactory answer, but the one that makes the most sense to me. I think we have an already not yet tension going on here. So when Paul wrote to a church, he wrote to the saints. But in some of these epistles, he exhorts us to holy living. Because we're saints, we want to see the implications of that holiness to come to fruition in our lives practically. And William Lane has some good material on that. But I don't know what else to say because this has been on my heart and mind and I've been reading about it and thinking about it. I think that we progressively and practically need to change from the status we have as saints to ultimate glorification. There's a process there. But I don't believe the process is ever totally disconnected from the status, nor is it totally disconnected from the gospel. I believe that the gospel itself encourages and motivates us on this journey toward sanctification in God. Yes, Luann. And maybe I just make this more difficult than it has to be, but I look at the pursue peace with all men and that and the sanctification without no one will see the Lord. And today we have the churches who want to approve and give the bypass to many sins that are brought out in Scripture. And, of course, I'm speaking, you know, there's so many, but the big one is homosexuality, where we're opening the doors and saying, go ahead and live your lifestyle, but... And then turn it to, if you try to tell people the truth, you are now unloving and you're not pursuing peace. All right. Now let's just back that up. Good comment, by the way, because that is now the hot issue. Is homosexuality in its practice sin? Are the inclinations sinful ones to be resisted? Yes, they should be resisted. If someone's in a gospel fellowship and they claim the right to live a homosexual life, 
style, what would be the appropriate response? Church, would you say, Eric? Church discipline, exactly. Church discipline. Now let's back it up even more. If it is true that those who practice homosexuality shall not inherit the kingdom of God, which it says, shall we not be more loving in the church discipline so that somebody would not be left in their eternal lost state hoping that there would be repentance? But God delivers us from our sins and our enemies, not our friends. And so if we define homosexual life, thought, word, and deed, not to be sin, how is God going to deliver us from what we won't even call sin? Does that make sense? Now, Eric, could you find that passage that you always cite when we do a radio in Philippians? And uh, Brian, could you bring the mic to Eric? Let me show you from the scripture how we find unity, peace with all men that is old. Good question, Loanne. Thanks for raising it. Somebody will come along and say, well, it's just the way I am. You've got to accept that. Well, you can accept a person according to common grace without calling that Christian fellowship. Yes. This is the official verse of CIC Radio. All right. Philippians 127. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you, I come and see you, or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. All right. Amen. So the peace with all men comes as we strive side by side. For the faith of the gospel. So I believe that one of the benefits of preaching the gospel is Christian unity. That we're unified in the gospel. And if the faith of the gospel is proclaimed forthrightly and regularly, we shall have a place that's bringing us to unity. But the gospel involves obedience and it instructs us to deny ungodliness. Homosexuality is ungodliness. It's a loving thing to tell people that. Now what about this coming shorter grace and the bitter root here? We have an allusion back to Deuteronomy 29.18. Deuteronomy 29.18. And it goes through verse 20. So that many being defiled will be the defilement of the community. Back to Loanne's question. If a Christian community says homosexual anything, marriage, behavior, what it, what it is in today's society, is an acceptable version of Christian fellowship, the entire community is defiled. We've just defiled what should be a godly Christian community. We can't do that. There must be church discipline. Deuteronomy 29, 18 through 20. So that there will not be any among you, a man or woman or family or tribe, whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God, 
to go and serve the gods of those nations, that there will not be among you a root, here's our allusion, bearing poisonous fruit and worm, worm, ah, worm wood. Verse 19, it shall be when he hears the words of this curse that he will boast, saying, I have peace, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart in order to destroy the watered land with the dry. In other words, stubbornly rebelling against God, but considering that peace. That's the essence of false prophecy. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Now, this is apostasy, verse 20. The Lord shall never be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will burn against that man, and every curse which is written in his book will rest on him, and the Lord will blot his name out from under heaven. There's the warning in the Old Testament about apostasy or blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, blaspheming the name, same warning is given in the book of Hebrews. Five times. There's five warnings against apostasy in Hebrews, including the one we're looking at in Hebrews 12. So now you have the cross-reference. Now, let's put this together here in the last few minutes. Romans 8, 29 through 30. Now remember, we're told to pursue peace and the holiness without which we will not see God. We won't see God without holiness. Romans 8, 29 through 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, this section in theology is often called the golden chain. We have a chain argument, this rock-solid logic. I took it to my logic professor who ended up being Eric's nemesis, <laughs> Laurentials. I took this and put it into logical categories, you know, if, then, therefore is using the symbols. And I laid it out as a chain argument, brought it to this professor. I said, is this a valid chain argument? Let me explain what that means. If you have a logical chain argument, if one link is broke, the whole argument fails. All of these things must be true of all of the people that it applies to. Okay, so if there's one who's called, and this is the internal call, who's never glorified, then it fails. So here you have the perseverance of the saints. Now the Bible said, as we read earlier, without holiness we will not see God. But it also says that all the called are justified. So if we're truly one of God's people... We're truly born of God, then somehow God is going to use means, including external means revealed to the whole church, 
and his fatherly discipline, which is unique to each person, to bring about that holiness that we pursue. And that he will always do that. And we will be glorified. And we will see God. And we're going to, we, we don't have time today, but if we become like Esau and sell out, or as we said earlier, don't become weary, act luo, say, no, no more discipline for me, I'm out of here. I'm going to go do what I want to do. We won't see God. It means we never were one of his people. They went out from, from us because they were not one of us. These, uh, my dear brothers and sisters, are, are, is scary, it's strong, but it's eminently biblical, and I can tell you no less than what it says in the scripture. What can you say? What can you say? I want God to work holiness into my life that practically changes me. And I think about evidences that that's not happening. My, the way I think, the way I react to things around me. And what do we do? Well, we, we put ourselves in, devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, and prayer, and don't throw away God's discipline. Maybe it's the discipline of the Lord that that weighs heavy on me. It didn't used to. It should have always, but it didn't. Now it does. I don't get to the point of despair, but I get to the point where, oh, Lord, help me. How how can I ever have a Christian attitude from the inside out about everything around me? I'm just telling you, that's kind of how it takes different shape for each of us. But we have to be serious about holiness, so we're not serious about being Christians. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for both the threats and the encouragement and the hope. And may we pursue peace with each other as we strive together for the faith of the gospel. And may none of us be left behind as we strive for holiness and to be conformed to the image of your Son. Give us grace to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.